Hey there, I'm Brittany, and welcome to the Cape Cod Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at capecodchurch.com. In the meantime, we hope you enjoyed this message in our current series. We have another story for you this week. If this is your first time with us, we have been walking through this message series called Everyone Has a Story. Each week we're walking through a scriptural story, someone from ancient times, but we're also celebrating stories from right in our midst, from members of our own community. And one of the things that has been very cool for me is to be surprised by the things that I hear. It is amazing what you learn about somebody's story when you start asking questions. Each week, I've been surprised. I've learned things that I didn't know, and that's true this week as well. And it is a privilege to hear this story. So we just want you to sit back and enjoy this story from our friend and our dear family member, Portia. Hi, my name is Fik Ile Portia Ndlovu. The name Portia is what I go by. My son's name is Elisha. He's turning three in November. He is a joy. I have to stay fit just to keep up with this little guy. I grew up in South Africa to a professional couple. Uh, My mother and father um, had been married uh, quite a few years before they had me. Um, We had a very a comfortable home environment. I remember we used to go down to the south coast uh, and and to coastal areas for our holidays. I loved water and that's where the whole maritime marine thing started to stick to me because I was very curious about the sea and the ocean and that world. I did a law degree and then I specialized in maritime law after realizing that I didn't really want to do family law or criminal law, which is something that seemed to be like what you had to do to be successful, kind of. I wanted to do something different. And then when the Admiralty professor walked in, and this was now post-apartheid Africa, South Africa, so I was like, I am not going to waste the opportunities that are open to me now and in, in pursuing fields that wouldn't be naturally open to me before. I actually won the ticket, the flight ticket to come to the US and I came with just my two suitcases, took all my savings. That's when you can afford to just pack two bags and just leave countries. Not now. (laughs) When I was busy with my PhD, you know, uh, trying to like uh, progress in my life and make something of myself, I had already broken up from near marriage situations. So I I was just, I just took a long break um, and I had thought that that would be it, but it wasn't. And I was okay with that. I was like so young. I was like, okay. So for many, many years, I just focused on my career. And then when I was in my thirties, I was like, oh, I hope I didn't leave this dating stuff for too long. Cause I really do long for a family. I do long for that belonging and that connection. Eventually I was like, you know what? If it's not meant to be, it's not meant to be. Um, and then eventually I met my son's father um, while I was doing a uh, one of my services in Cape Town, South Africa. And uh, I was like, yeah, this is from God because he was in the Lord as I was looking for um, that kind of connection. Um, so there was a beautiful wedding that came out of that. Everything seemed fine, only to find out that that relationship was absolutely never going to work and there was no hope for it ever, you know. As a woman, as a lawyer, 
as someone who believes in justice, as someone who knows her God, I definitely don't believe that you should stay in a situation that basically changes you into anything but a woman of virtue. Basically, you should not accept abuse. Jesus Christ is not a sadist. When I got into the marriage and that stuff was discussed, to see threats that were going in the opposite direction was like, I wouldn't even pick you as a friend in the street if I'd known that I would be living a life of fear and threats and whatever, you know, so, and, like, why can't you see, like, that's actually one of the reasons I became a lawyer. I found myself in a situation that I never thought I would be in, you know, uh, being a single, newly divorced mom who is, um, while relieved to be divorced, um, I, I, I was disappointed with, um, the idea that my family is incomplete, I never wanted to give my child a fatherless home because those things I, I, I value a lot and I didn't grow up in a fatherless home. So I was just like, um, wow, okay, so this is, this is my life now. Um, and even though that decision was right um, in the circumstances, uh, it was pretty shocking because as a child of God, you pray for that beautiful family you pray that it's going to work out you pray that it's going to be of god i have decided that i know the king of lights i know the prince of peace he has not thrown me away he has a plan he has a plan for my son um and i i'm going to continue to be faithful in training him in the things of god having a family can also interpret itself in different ways like in my case it's just me and elisha with the church with our family back home south africa then i definitely wish my uh, son's father really well and, and a lot of success in the future and and whatever he does moving on I'm so privileged to be this little guy's mom he was so wanted and I just thank God for how it's all worked out and that's pretty much my story for now <laughs> well good morning hey once again would you help me just thank uh, Portia for sharing her story uh, Portia is going to be in the next service, but uh, it takes such um, bravery and vulnerability to sort of put your story out in front of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, many of whom you don't know, and yet those stories all teach us something. They remind us that everyone, uh, everyone has a story, right? And every story matters. So we've said as a church that we want to help people discover a full life with God. That's what we do. We help people discover a full life with God. Because it's really only only through him. And here's what we've discovered, that that's going to cost us something. So when we were fleshing this out as a story a year ago, we summed it up in commitments. We, we brought all of this down to five commitments. 
And the fourth of which was this. We give generously to care for people's lives. We give generously. In fact, last year when we did it, it was the only one we attached to it a uh, a measurable goal. We said a year ago that one way, it's not the only way, but one way that we would do that is that we would we would set a goal in three years' time, and we're in the second year of this goal, to give away a million dollars across the street and around the world to care for people's lives, their physical lives and their spiritual lives. It was one of our goals. It's not the only one. It's not the only way we live out generously, generosity, but it's one important, measurable way. In fact, next month, in November, we'll begin talking. It's a month of celebration as we talk about what God's allowed us to do. And I'm tempted to sort of give away the good stuff today because I'm talking about this commitment, but I'm going to leave something for November. But it's good news, so hang on. What does generosity look like? One of the best places, I think, in Scripture that speaks to it is this verse. Let me read it to you. From 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 7, it gives what I think is a broader definition of, of generosity. It's, it says, and it's talking about giving here, but it says this. It says, you must decide in your hearts how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. So clearly, this is not strategic fundraising for the church 101, right? Because it starts off saying, oh, no, no, do not give out of guilt or pressure. In fact, your giving should be a matter of the devotion of your heart. That's where it should come from. But then it finishes with this. It says, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully, right? I, when I think of, of, of generosity as a true thing, I, I think of this, right? A, a person who gives Cheerfully, but where does that? That's just that's that's unusual. And where does that come from? Where does where does cheerful generosity come from? I think in simplest terms, it, it comes from the the resources I have coupled together with the people I care about. You put those two things together: the resources I have and the people that I happen to care about, and you'll have what often looks like, like generosity. There's a story in, in the Old Testament that I think brings out these two ideas, the, the resources that I have and the people that I care about in a way that's maybe a bit broader and a bit more significant. It's, it's the story of Elijah. In fact, in, in, in this passage in Kings chapter 17, Elijah has just jumped on. We don't, we don't know anything about Elijah. He just like shows up and it, he shows up offering a proclamation to the king who's not happy about the proclamation, that there's going to be a famine because of the king's not so great behavior. And then God takes care of Elijah. You may remember this. Elijah, uh, those of you who grew up in Sunday school, this was a Sunday school favorite because Elijah was living by a brook being fed by ravens, which for some reason, when you're like six or seven years old, sounds way cooler than it does when you're 
a grown adult, right? Because I never looked at ravens and thought, oh, they would be awesome food delivery agents. <laughs> That's what God does for a little while. And then that runs out, and the brook dries up, <laughs> and he is hungry. And God sends him outside of Israel. He sends him to this little village called Zarephath. And so he's, with, he's in a foreign land with foreign people. And God's going to provide for him there through this widow woman who has almost nothing. He has nothing. She has almost nothing. And I, let me read to you the story because I think it does in some ways speak right to these two things, the resources I have and the people I care about. Let me read it to you. Starting in 1 Kings chapter 17, picking up in verse 10, it says, so he went to Zarephath and um, as he arrived at the gates of the village, he saw a widow gathering sticks, and he asked her, Would you please bring me a little water in a cup? It's a, it's a, it's a drought. The brook is dried up. Resources are scarce. And then it says this. It says, as she was going to get it, he called to her. He decides to push his luck, like she's willing to give me a drink. And so maybe he says, bring me a bite of bread, too. And this was this was all she could handle. Like, does this guy not understand? But she said, I swear by the Lord your God, that I don't have a single piece of bread in the house. I've got a handful of flour left in a jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal, and then my son and I will die. So he says, but Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do just what you've said, but make a little bread for me first. Then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Who are you telling not to be afraid? This woman's got a baby and she's, she's down to her last handful of flour of meal and this guy's asking for something and she's not ready. Don't be afraid. You see, fear is our, 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 our natural survival instinct, right? We, and this is why scarcity is the enemy of generosity. What I don't think I have is what limits my generosity. Scarcity is the enemy of generosity. But the prophet says, don't, don't be afraid because we do math right this is this is what limits generosity we we do survival math i've got this and i need this to stay alive to win the game to get ahead to have a little right we're we're always doing math we're like living in a in a monopoly world right remember monopoly monopoly is just pure math it's like if i have this i can buy this if i have a little bit more of this i can buy a few more of those and if I have a few more of those, I can win a little bit. Because at the end, the game is to own all of the stuff and everybody else has none of the stuff. I know you're not living your life that way, but that's the way the game is played, right? Where, and there's no, there's no place for generosity in Monopoly, is there? 
I mean, like, like there's no... you. How many of you in our home growing up, so our, our father loved Monopoly and, and he used it as a brutal teaching tool. <laughs> there was zero mercy, never. And I just quit playing with my dad, you know, just, you know. And, and did, did you have this in your family? We, we had a, 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 like a house rule that allowed for loans. Anybody else have house rules that allowed for loans? Yeah, yeah, a few, few of you. <laughs> But that makes it worse because you'll ask for a loan and now it's like, are you going to help me get more or are you going, I'm gonna, I'm gonna withhold it if I can win the game. The loan is only a device to help them win the game. Man. Fear. It's like, it's math. And, and this is what happens with us with, with, with our resources. We're, we're doing math. I have this and I need this to get this. And, and that's, that's the enemy, that scarcity in my life, that sense of what I need to get ahead, to stay ahead, to just stay alive is, is what limits my, my generosity. And by the way, generosity is, let me, let me take this in a whole nother direction because generosity is not just money. Like the most generous people you know aren't just generous with their resources. They're generous with their spirit, aren't they? Like you know generous people who are just generous because they're, they're, they, they have a kindness even to a stranger. They can offer forgiveness to someone who hurts them in ways that are surprising. They've got a generosity. They're, they're patient with people who are exhausting. Generous. It's not just that it, it flows into, into all of these, these areas. And watch what happens next in the story. In verse 14, he says, after he's asked her for a drink and, and food before she feeds her own, he says, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, there will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord send rain and the crops go again. There will always be. He's, he's making an, an outsized promise so she did as Elijah said, and she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. There was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers, just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. So the Christian motivation for generosity is unique. To this point, I, I, most everything we've said about generosity could be applied in a you know, broad spectrum in any setting, but the Christian motivation for generosity is unique because the Christian motivation is this. We believe that we have resources that are not obvious. We have resources beyond ourselves that God has a way to provide what I otherwise think I might not have. 
And our generosity is driven by this belief that, that God's work in and through me provides me with resources. And I can literally, many of you grew up, you kind of grew up like I did in, a, uh, in, in a, an environment in church where, where giving was kind of a, a, a system and, and you, you leaned into it and you leaned into it because you believed and even in the idea of tithing that God would provide. And so you gave what was called the first fruits because I'm trusting that if I put God first, he will always provide. And sometimes he would provide in dramatic, unexpected ways. And this is what drives patience with exhausting people. I I believe that God in and through me is going to give me a reservoir to enable me to be generous towards a stranger, to be generous and kind towards a offender, to offer forgiveness because there's a reservoir of resource in me that's not obvious. It's like when when you have to go to pay for something and you reach into your pocket and you're like, "This is this is what I have." This is it. This is all I have. But it's like we have another pocket, right? And it's not, we're not re- reaching into the back pocket. And in the back pocket, we've got dad's credit card. Remember dad's credit card? I know you're thinking, I have dad's credit card. I remember in college, my, uh, my, my dad and we, we didn't, we didn't grow up, uh, we didn't grow up with a lot. But I was driving back and forth. I'd come home on weekends and I had this, this rat trap car and my dad gave me a, a Sitco gas card. It wasn't like a visa. It only worked at Sitco. My dad was involved in a, uh, in a, in a company where they had a series of, of gas stations and convenience stores and, and, and they were Sitco. So I would like look everywhere for Sitco. Because I had a Sitco gas card. And here's, here's what else I discovered. That you could go to a Sitco gas station if it was like a convenience store. <laughs> Dad's credit card. And if I was with my friends, I was extra generous. <laughs> like microwave hamburgers. Uh, oh, they were awesome. I mean, I thought they were awesome. I'm like, man, hey, who wants a burger, right? Microwave, frozen in the freezer, drop them in the microwave because the Sitco card worked, right? There was a resource, a reservoir beyond myself. And here's what we're saying. Like, listen, it's not just the resources, the generosity, the extreme sometimes unreasonable generosity that should exist in the life of a Christian is built on the idea that I have resources that aren't obvious. I can literally give by faith because I trust that when I'm led by God and I give by faith, I will never outgive him and he will always, always take care of the need that I have. And I can reach into that resource when I've been deeply hurt and offended. And I can offer a forgiveness, the generosity of kindness that I might not otherwise have because I'm reaching into my back pocket to my father's credit card. And he's putting something through me that allows me to offer kindness or forgiveness or patience where I otherwise wouldn't have it. This is why. 
as followers of Jesus, as believers in a Jesus Christ, God in the flesh who rose from the grave and lives in us, we are meant to live lives that are uniquely generous because we have resources that aren't obvious. Still sounds hard, though, doesn't it? I mean, wouldn't it be easier just to do math? Math's easy. I got five of these. I can buy three of these. I'll give one of these. Right? That's math. But we couple it with the, the, the people we care about, right? The, the resources I have when it comes together with people I care about. In fact, in this passage, the whole passage, if you go back to verse 8, it says, then the Lord said to Elijah, this is the beginning of the story. Before he goes to the village, the Lord comes to Elijah. And watch what he says, verse 9. He says, go and live in the village of Zarephath, near the city of Sidon. I have instructed a widow there to feed you. Huh. How did he do that? Like, like literally, like, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like, how did, <laughs> like, like how, how did he get the message across? Because it doesn't, there's no burning bush, right? There's no burning bush, and she comes in the bush, and it's burning, and the bush speaks to her, right? There's no Ten Commandments. It doesn't tell us. It just says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to speak to this woman, and I'm going to instruct her to, to take care of you. I'm going to instruct huh, I'm going to instruct her to care about you. I don't know how that happened. It doesn't seem like, I mean, if you if you read between the lines, it doesn't seem like it was woman, take care of the prophet. Right? It doesn't, it doesn't seem like that, right? There's nothing. Here's how I know that. Because when the prophet shows up, she's like, no. Right? She doesn't go, oh, you're the one the voice was talking about. Her first reaction is, yeah, a glass of water is it. How about some food? I just, ah, you no know, food. She's wrestling. I don't know exactly how it happened, but here's my suspicion. My suspicion is somewhere God had been at work in her life. and Somewhere the, the teaching of the law, which she would have already had, came into her life, and she had been reminded how to treat the stranger. And then maybe, I wonder if it wasn't in that moment, if it was just the, the still, small voice of God just whispering, hey, this is your moment. This is your moment. Don't, don't miss this. Don't miss this moment. The still, small voice of God expanding the group of people we care about. Because up until that morning, her, her, her group was two. Her and her little boy. A two-person group. That's where my generosity extends to. 
And now God's coming to her, and through his spirit, he's saying, I want you to expand your group. I want you to, I, I want you to, to, to open it up, and I want you to involve. I want you to, to live generously towards, towards one more. Because, listen, that's not the only way that we can... God speaks into our lives, and he prompts us, and he says through his spirit, listen... I, I care about this person, and I want you to care about them. I care about this group of people. I care about this cause, and I want you to care about it, and I want you to live generously towards this broadly defined group called your neighbor. But there are other ways, right? You can, you can, you can get people to do stuff through guilt, right? We can guilt people into stuff. We can guilt people by saying, you have so much. Do you know how much you spend on Starbucks every week? Or Dunkin'. Dunkin's not even cheap anymore. Right? I got up all of that and think about everyone else around the world, right? What are we doing? It's like, it's like guilt. It's like pressure. We can compel people. You know, we compel people. Taxes. Does it feel good? No. That's not generosity. Sorry. Not sorry. <laughs> See, generosity is, is, is when the group I care about is, is expanded. But is it, we're, not, we're not trying to like, it's not guilt, it's not pressure. I read a story, it's fascinating. This is a true story. I know you're going to think, oh, it's not true. It's true. It's true. 1981, uh, the Pentagon uh, commissioned uh, a group. They, 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 they realized that it was the height of the Cold War. Remember these days, some of you, right? The height of the Cold War. And there is a guy, uh, I think it's a Marine, who, who uh, walks next to the president and cares what they call the football, right? We know what the football is. The football is the, the briefcase with the nuclear codes in it. We're thinking a lot about that these days. We're like, that's, some, that's, a, lot, that's a lot of... That's a lot of power. And so, in 1981, the Pentagon was like considering, like, what do we do to make sure that we, if we use those codes, <laughs> we really, 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 really wanted to use them. So they, they brought in a consultant, a Harvard professor. His name is Roger Fisher. And he put together a paper and a proposal for what they could do to ensure that if a president called for the use of that code, it really mattered. And here was his proposal. He said, I propose that we take the code and we put it in a pill. And then we surgically emplace that pill inside of that soldier's chest cavity next to his heart. And then they carry around, I'm not making this up, they carry around a butcher knife. And the president would have to kill one man before he killed millions. <laughs> Even the military said, whoa, that is crazy. No, no, we're not. They asked them about it later, and they, they said, we're trying to bring the, the reality of death from distant to close. 
Before somebody pulls the trigger, we want them to consider that it's not just a, a group of numbers, but it's, a, it's real people. Instead, this is what God does. He puts his spirit in you next to your heart and his spirit whispers I love that person I love that person I want you to love that person hey, hey mom mom I know you got to take care of your little boy trust me trust me trust me I want you to expand your circle and care for this prophet. You see how, what he's doing. He's taking the resources we have and he says, I've got more. And he's taking the circle of people we care about and he's expanding it. Just like he did. And this is what generosity looks like. I read that story about the pill in the heart, and I thought this may be the most extreme thing I've ever read. I mean, and one of the problems that occurs to me is who would sign up for that job? Right? Like, oh, by the way, would you like to carry the football and have the code implanted in your chest? Nobody would do this, right? I mean, I'd move to Canada. Right? No, who would do this? I mean, who would, who would willingly sacrifice themselves to save millions? Hmm. Can I read to you one last verse? 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life. For us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. We know what real love is. <clears throat> we know what real generosity is. We know what real sacrifice is because Jesus gave up his life. So that you, and you, and you, and you, and I could have life. That's what Jesus Christ did. And that's where the story of generosity always, always, always begins. It begins with Jesus, who gave up everything. To come to this earth, to be born in a manger, to live a short-lived life and sacrifice his life. So that you and I would have the chance by faith to say yes to him, but the option to say no. That's a critical piece the option to say no I don't need it 
I don't want it. And yet, Jesus gave up his life so that you could have the option of saying yes to his gift of life and life to the full. An incredible gift. Would you bow your heads as we close in prayer? Generosity. The resources I have and the people I care about. You have the resources of the Father. And he's called us to expand this circle of generosity. Just like he did. But maybe you're here and in this moment, you've been back and forth with whether to say yes to Jesus Christ or to keep saying, nope, not now. Not yet. As if you knew exactly how your days were numbered. But maybe today is the day. Maybe today is the day for you to say yes to Jesus Christ who willingly gave his life so that you and I can have life and life to the full. If that's you, I just want to finish by leading you in a prayer. If you've been here before, you've heard me do this before, but maybe you've just sat and said, no, not me, not yet. Not necessary. Not sure. But maybe all of that is set aside and you're ready to say yes. And if that's you, then I just want to invite you to quietly pray a prayer of faith like this. Dear Lord, I believe in you. Jesus Christ, I trust in you and you alone. I accept your gift of forgiveness offered on the cross and through your death once and for all. I invite you into my life Help me now to live my life fully for you. In Jesus' name, amen.